Good morning. I think it's a good morning. I'm having a good morning. Um, morning, everyone. Uh, I want to start off this morning. Uh, this is an African proverb that says, home is not where we live. Home is where we belong. And so as you join together, as we all join together in worship this morning, um, just like to, to celebrate the fact that we're gathering to worship in not only the Lord's home, but in our home too. That God invites us into one and that, yeah, none of us live physically in this building, but when we come together to worship, home is where we belong because we belong to not only Jesus, we belong to each other. Um, this morning I'm starting a, a new sermon series. We'll be going through the book of Luke. Uh, it was kind of tricky to start off where or pick where to start off in Luke because in the last at least five years, you know, we've jumped around in Luke a lot. So a lot of times we have Advent and celebrating Jesus' coming. We spend time in Luke, right, because he writes a lot about the story of Jesus in, in that sense. But And then at the, the Easter, you know, for resurrection, Good Friday, that whole thing, we go to Luke too because he also talks a lot about the crucifixion, the arrest and all that. Um, and then in the past five years, you know, I've done parables of Jesus, right? So we've done the parable of the lost sons, the parable of lost coin, um, the rich young ruler I think we've preached on, Zacchaeus we've preached on. So we've been around Luke a lot, right? So it's trying to figure out, like, what of Luke we're going to pull out so we're not just repeating the same sermons we gave you last year and the year before. Um, but as I read through the book of Luke, one of the things that really jumped out is that, that this entire book can probably be summed up as the good news for the lost. And, and I think one of the things that's really, really um, fascinating about Luke, like most Bible writers, right, it's a really cool lesson, I think, because they bring who they are into the writing, right? Who they are is exposed in the writing. And I think that's beautiful because it's a reminder to us that all of who we are, right, whether you're a father or a son, a mother or a sister, an aunt, uh, you know, whether you're retired or working, like whatever your job, career, socioeconomic status, if you give all of that over to God, God can use it for glory. So if you look at Luke, you see the breakdown. First of all, he's a Gentile. That's kind of important, you know, because Luke is going to write about the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, and he's going to write as a Gentile. And you will see how that impacts not only what he writes, but what he pulls out of the story for us. Luke is also a physician, right? So he's brilliant, you know. So you'll see him move. So even in the chapter 1, he'll start off with a lot of um, Bible commenters will point out that, hey, when you read the first four verses uh, of Luke, 1, 1 to 4, it's beautiful Greek. It's, it's very high Greek. It's wonderful Greek. And I always laugh when I read that because I'm like, but we're all reading it in English. You know, it's like we don't get this joke. It's like you guys think it's beautiful, but we're all reading it in English, right? But what's fascinating about that is you see Luke is, is, is appealing to his audience. So when he starts off, he's going to say, hey, I am writing this because I'm an investigative journalist. So he's going to appeal to the people at that time who were at the, the highest end of the spectrum saying, like, I'm going above and beyond to do this investigative work to tell you who Jesus is. And then what's fascinating is when you get to verse 5 and he starts telling the story of Jesus, it morphs from high Greek into almost like a Jewish fairy tale, right? Like my family, every Christmas, we still read Luke 1 and 2 before the kids open presents, right? My, my goal is my wife and her two sisters, they all have it memorized because they all have to read it every day, uh, every Christmas before they open presents. So that's my goal for my kids. I was like, I want you all to memorize this. We've got to read it every year, right? But it reads like a Jewish uh, folklore and a Jewish uh, a story. And why that's important is because Luke is appealing to his audience, right? We're getting ready for the back to school. 
painfully. I heard Hershey starts tomorrow. God bless you. I think Milton Hershey already started. Apparently it's not summer in Hershey. I don't understand how that works, right? Um, God bless all of them, right? But as we think about this get back to school, it's always important that as, as, as anyone who teaches or leads that when you're teaching something, you have to start with a base of understanding, right? You can't just jump to something no one understands and then hope they get it eventually, right? So Luke, that's what he does when he appeals to the Jewish folktale. He's like, I know your prophecies, right? As a Gentile, I know your prophecies, and I'm going to show you how Jesus fulfills all these prophecies. He's also a historian, which is why he's going to look at this very seriously, right? Uh, almost better to think of him as an investigative journalist because he says, I know the eyewitnesses. You know, I'm going to go and talk to them. I'm going to pull all their stories, pull it together. But then the last thing about Luke that kind of gives him uh, uh, even more standing to tell this story is that really he's a co-worker. In Acts, which he also writes, uh, he starts talking about everything that everyone else is doing. And then you blink and all of a sudden he starts talking about things we're doing. Right? It goes from this is what happened on the day of Pentecost to this is when I went with Paul when we were here and we did this and we did that. All of that's important because you see Luke is not just talking to eyewitnesses. He's an eyewitness himself. Uh, the other thing about Luke is that he's very loyal. Uh, not only does he go on Paul's second and third missionary journeys, he's, one of the, he's the one who stayed with Paul when Paul's in Rome. And if you know the end of Paul's story, when he's captured by Rome, that leads to his execution. Why is that important? Uh, Paul has this guy named Demas who probably has one of the worst one-liners in the Bible, right? Like it's a line that says, some of you laughed. Do you know this line? Paul literally said about Demas, he loved the world that he deserted me. You know? I don't know what they're going to put on my gravestone, but don't put that. You know, just like he loved the world, but he deserted me. Like, I don't know what Demas was doing. I'm not sure why he left Paul. All I know is that when they got to heaven, I'm sure they had a conversation. You know, it's like, we got to praise Jesus forever, but Paul, we need to talk. You know, but that's what he puts down. So Demas deserted him, and Luke stayed. Luke was one of the ones who stayed. Why is that important? Well, jails have always been tough. Jails are tough today. You know, jails are, are terrible today, actually, even in this country. Some would say especially in this country. Back then, there was, a, there was different aspects of how tough it was. One of the aspects is that in most Roman prisons, you did not get food. I repeat, you did not get food. Like, when you committed a crime, you were considered an outsider, and the responsibility for feeding you was not put on the Romans, was not put on the soldiers, was put on your family. So if you didn't have anyone stay with you or you didn't have anyone in the area to bring you food, you would not eat. So for Luke to stay by Paul, either to put himself in the same situation he's in or to volunteer to bring him food every day, something as little as that, just shows you the kind of loyalty that Luke has, not only to God, but to the community, to the faith. So we have that he, he's present in the journeys, he's loyal. Um, he, he writes the entire story. We talk about how the gospel is, you know, God sent Jesus, but he was born, he lived, he died, he resurrected, he ascended, he's preparing heaven. Luke is one of the few gospel writers who covers it all, right? So he'll start with the very beginning, and he'll end with, with Jesus' story. The last thing about Luke that I think kind of informs, maybe finally gives us a, a good grounding, is that a lot of Bible writers and scholars will tell you that Luke-Acts is really two volumes, right? As in, like, they fit together. Some people even say Acts is the sequel of Luke. I think for me it's better to think of it as, like, first half, second half. Maybe I watch too much sports, you know, but it's just first half, second half because I don't see them as, as independent volumes. I see them as one book, and this is why I say that, because they inform each other. So Luke will say, hey, 
um, this gospel is about the lost people and it's about the Gentiles, right? And, and you'll have someone like uh, 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 Simeon, who we meet in the very beginning of Jesus' birth story, when he holds baby Jesus. Now, this you want on your gravestone, right? When he holds baby Jesus, what does he say? He says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. I laughed in the first service because most of us will not get to say that, right? Like most of us, it's just going to be like you blink, you're in heaven, like, oh, Jesus, nice to see you. Did not happen, you know, did not expect this to happen today, right? Like, most of us are not going to know when that day comes. But Simeon was ready because he held baby Jesus. He's like, I'm ready to go now, Lord. I'm ready to go. I held Jesus, right? For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a life of revelation to the Gentiles and to the glory of your people Israel. So Luke is going to say this is what the gospel is about, not just Israel, but the Gentiles. And then when you get to Acts, the second half of the story, what happens on the day of Pentecost? The Spirit comes down, 3,000 are saved, and they go out to the Gentiles. What's the book of Acts? Paul himself calls himself what? An apostle to the Gentiles. First half, second half, they inform one another. The, the other thing about Luke that's really, really interesting to me anyway is that he's going to make this case. And I think this is important for us to understand. He is not an insider. Paul is the ultimate insider, right? The Jew of all Jews, the, the Pharisee, the, the super connected. A lot of times we point out that, that Paul, because he was a Roman citizen, you know, that's why, you know, he suffered, but it was like they wouldn't kill him. I had a friend this week who is uh, a Native American, and she actually opened my eyes on this. She's like, yeah, we miss Paul's privilege. I was like, I don't know. Paul seemed to have suffered a lot. <laughs> like, it's in the screen, he suffered a lot. And she's like, no, no, no. If he wasn't a Roman citizen... <laughs> If he was a regular Joe, he wouldn't be Paul. He'd be dead. And I said, well, that's interesting. Never thought about that before, right? So even Paul, she would argue, has privilege, and that's what kept him alive. So he's an ultimate insider. Even though he's abused by Rome, He, because he's a citizen, he's kept alive. Luke is none of that. He's an outsider. And yet to these primarily Jewish people, he's going to tell them what? Listen, the gospel's for all of us. The gospel's for all of us. I know this is your Messiah, but that's actually the Messiah for the world. In fact, right, and that's where, like, he's not really humble because he's going to say, basically, um, I know you think Jesus is the, the, the Jewish Messiah, and I know you think we're co-opting your faith. In fact, we're not co-opting your faith. We're just fulfilling it, right? Like, God's plan is not for you. It's for all of us, which for us as Gentiles, that sounds really good. But as you'll see in our story, that didn't always go over well. Right? Like telling them this is not your God, this is the God for the world. Didn't always go over well. And you'll see that in a couple minutes here. But then the last thing that Luke is going to say is that all of us then, Jews and Gentiles, people who put their faith in Jesus, become followers of Jesus, we become a member of God's family together. And so as you go through this book, whether it's the rich young ruler or the sons who never left home and was faithful and loyal, but he didn't know his father loved them, or the one who left home and had a crazy wild living and had to learn that his father loved them, or, or you meet all these different other people with Zacchaeus, who we've talked about a little bit this morning, you're going to see lost people after lost people after lost people. But the joy of Luke is that the lost can be found in the Lord. The joy of Luke is that all of us at some point might be an outsider, but yet in Jesus Christ, we can be home. Amen? Every Bible, turn with me now to Luke chapter 4. I'll be reading verses 14 to 30. We'll also have it up front so you can follow there as well. Luke 4, starting at verse 14. There we go. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. And he was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. 
he went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his own hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was, was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy or skin diseases in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people of the Syrian God were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off a cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. When we say that Jesus is home for everyone, the frightening thing is that sometimes the people of God think that Jesus is something to be possessed by only them. Let's pray together. Our Father God, we thank you so much. That you have decided to make home with us. That you have sent your son to come down from heaven. To not only walk this earth, but to show us how to live and please you. God, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, for his life, for what we're going to learn. Not just in the scripture, but what we learn in, in the course of our lives too. That you're faithful, that you're good, that you're true. That you carry us, that you're carrying us, that you will be with us. Lord Jesus our Christ, we thank you now for this story for the coming of you into this world, not just for us, but for the world. Help us now as we get into this text to open our eyes to see things anew, to lift you up and to give you all the thanks, all the glory, all the honor for you, God Almighty, you Lord of the universe, have chosen to make home with us. Not just us as individuals, but we as your family. Not just we as your family in Harrisburg, but we as your family all over Pennsylvania in North America, in Central America, in South America, in Europe, in Asia, in Africa, in all the world, Lord, you came for the world. So we thank you that we as primarily Gentiles this morning get to call you our Lord and Savior, that the Jewish Messiah that was promised is truly the Savior for the world. In your name we pray, amen. So in this passage, it's, it's, it's kind of, um, there's a bunch of things that are, uh, are interesting to me in this passage. So Luke has pledged to be an investigative reporter. And so as you go through the verse three chapters of Luke, he's going to say, hey, listen, I'm testing everything out, right? But then he goes into this story about Jesus. And, and when you get to the Advent story, it's a very Jewish story. There's no other way around it, right? It's not an African story. It's not an Asian story. This was what was promised in the Old Testament, and it all comes true. But not only that, a lot of times the gospel writers especially would cheat a little bit. They would just quote uh, Old Testament scripture and put it in the middle of the passage, right? Now, we don't do such a thing. Like, we would never do proof texting like that. Like, we don't do that, right? But they would do that sometimes. They would just take a verse and, and pull it out and be like, you figure out how it fits in together. 
But what Luke does is he doesn't just rely on verses. He's even going to set the scene. In fact, before we meet John the Baptist, we meet Zechariah in a temple. And he's a priest. It doesn't get more Jewish than that, right? And, and so that's what you have. You have priests. You have uh, angels appearing to the priests. You have prophecies being fulfilled. You have people bursting in praise. And even the position of Jesus, as Luke described it, all of that is very, very Jewish. When you get to the genealogy of Jesus, that's a very Jewish thing to do. Like, who do you come from? Now, for a lot of us who maybe grew up in America or who are more Western, this isn't our, 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 our way of thinking, right? A lot of our identity is, is individual, like I am Henry Johnson, right? In my culture, that does not exist, right? Like in my culture, it's like you are literally your parent's child. Like, it did, like we don't do this whole individualism, right? Like, so to like, I cannot go back home to Liberia and be like, I'm Henry Johnson. They'll be like, no, you're Fometa's boy, right? And if that wasn't enough, it's like, you're Vi and Grebo. And if that was enough, you're a miracle Liberian. There's all these different networks that you're in, and that's what gives you your identity. But that's how they move. So when you have the genealogy of Jesus, Luke is not going to just say, like, Jesus shows up. He's going to say, no, this is a Jewish Messiah, and I'm going to trace you all the different kings that you've had, and this is where he's coming from. So you see that in this very Jewish story, you'll have a priest and prophecy and praise and the position of Jesus, all are in this Jewish context. But the second thing that Luke is going to talk about here is anointing. Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one. And, and so when you have Simeon, who we met earlier, right, he gets the whole baby Jesus, and what he says is, my eyes have seen the glory, right? Like basically, God, I can die now. Right? And Anna basically says the same, a version of the same thing. It's just like, I've been faithful all these years. I didn't know you were going to show up. I'm so glad you're here. And they both point to being the salvation of, of the world. Now, what was interesting is that, that back then, that one of the things that people knew they were anointed was that they would be anointed with oil. Now, we still do that somewhat. You know, we go to pray for someone, might anoint them with oil a little bit. Um, the ancients took it a little bit seriously, right? Like, so some of the priests, you know, they might as well be Liberian because they would oil up their skin so it shines, right? Like, like, I came to America, I learned about this thing called lotion. I was just like, this don't work on my skin. Like, we were in the sun a lot. You put lotion on, it's just like you get ashy two seconds later. In my culture, you know what we use? We use Vaseline, right? It's just like you pack it on, use nice and glistening, you do not get ashy. It's great, right? A lot of you are just like, I don't know. I'm just telling you. If you have my skin and you did lotion, you would be ashy, right? We don't do that, right? But I say all that to say that's what the priests did because they wanted everyone to know they were set apart. So they would not just be anointed. You would see the oil on some of their skin to show that, yes, I'm a priest, but more than that, I'm set apart. And so this anointing of Jesus that Luke is going to tell about is you're going to have Simeon and Anna say, this is the one. You're going to have the temple is where the story is happening. You're going to have John the Baptist, who we learned about in Malachi a couple weeks ago, right? John the Baptist, his entire point is going to be what? I'm preparing the way of the Lord, right? And then lastly, not only are you going to have that, is right before our story begins, you have Jesus in the wilderness. And that's when I started getting kind of like, it's kind of hitting me on different waves in this sermon. The first thing I thought about is why does the wilderness narrative happened right before where we think Jesus launches his ministry. And I think that's because if Jesus needs to survive the wilderness, or, or, or if Jesus goes to the wilderness, how much more should we be impacted when we enter into our own wildernesses too? If the God of this universe, right? And I think a lot of times when we go through that story, we pull out the three things, right? Like, it's just like, man should not live by bread alone, right? Don't put the Lord your God to the test. We, we pull out all the three different temptations of Jesus. 
But when you break it down, those are three conversations. And some of us, we talk a lot, right? But three conversations don't take 40 days, which means that most of Jesus' time in the wilderness, he was tired, he was hungry, he probably felt alone, and he may have been like, God, where are you? And I know you're like, well, it's Jesus, but he was also perfectly human. And I don't know about you, but some of y'all right now are thinking about what you're having for lunch. Right? Now add 39 and a half more days to that. Right? So, so I bring that up because when Jesus is in the wilderness, something incredible happens. He's literally empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that's how he gets through. So I don't know about you this morning. I don't know what wilderness you're in. Sometimes we enter into the wilderness because of our own doing. Sometimes we're in the wilderness because of someone else's doing. Sometimes we're in the wilderness because we just don't know where to go. We don't know where God is. We don't know. We just feel alone. But if Jesus can get through that wilderness with Satan in his ear, trying to tempt him to turn the wrong way, and Jesus made it through through the power of the Holy Spirit, how much more should you be reliant on the Holy Spirit? Whatever wilderness we're in, we can get through it because God's on our side, because God's carrying us, and if we're willing to submit to the Holy Spirit. So Jesus, in our scene here, enters into Nazareth, into Galilee, from the wilderness. In fact, John's gospel will say that Jesus came from Capernaum. And John will kind of posit that Jesus sets up shop in Capernaum before Nazareth. And as a kid, this, I really struggled with this, right? I'm just like, why would someone, you know, start their ministry in Harrisburg instead of Monrovia? Right? Like, it just doesn't make sense, right? Like, why would Jesus start his ministry in Capernaum and not Nazareth where he's from? Then you read this story, you're like, well, maybe he had a good idea why he didn't want to start in Nazareth, right? So what happens in Capernaum? Well, we think that the, 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 what's believed to be the first miracle, the water and wine, that happened in the first four chapters of John. We meet Nicodemus, right? You are the light of the world. Like, for God so loved the world, you meet Nicodemus. But then you also meet the woman at the well. So by the time Jesus has set up shop, he's fully into ministry in Capernaum by the time he gets back to Galilee. Why is that important? That's important because the people heard about these things that he's doing. And now I think a lot of us, when we think about Jesus coming to Galilee, we kind of, uh, uh, I shouldn't put this on you. A lot of people think of Galilee the way we think of Nazareth. Nazareth was like a little town, right? Uh, what's a town I love? Oberlin, right? 99% of you might not know where that is. You've probably driven through it at least 17 times, right? But Oberlin is Nazareth. It's a small town. It's next to the big town. It's just it's, it's there, right? You just go through it, right? That's Nazareth. Galilee was huge. Galilee was a region. In fact, Josephus, who's a, a Roman scholar, and again, some, some scholars don't really believe his numbers. I, it's not like politicians who work for the government would ever lie, right? But Josephus, they don't really believe his numbers, but it's all we got to go with. He estimated that Galilee could have had 3 million people. You know what that is? That's like the Philadelphia metro area, right? That's like Philadelphia, and you go 30 minutes all around Philadelphia. That's Galilee. So when Jesus is coming back to Galilee, he's not coming back to Oberlin, right? He's not even coming back to Harrisburg. He's going to Philadelphia area. Like, that's a pretty big deal. Why is that important? We also know that Galilee at the time had a lot of very important trade routes. Meaning that Galilee, this little area or this area in the middle of Israel, quite possibly would have people coming from all over the world, right? And, and so that influence of people all coming together would be impacted in Galilee. Now, I don't know. If you're the God of the universe and your son was going to be born the Jewish Messiah 
and there was a place that you wanted him to come from, would you not go to the place at the time where the world met? Would you not go to the place at the time that was known for trade routes, right? So when Jesus comes from Galilee, I want us to realize, think more Philadelphia area, right, than the little town no one knows. So this is what he's going back to. And as he comes into the big city, if you will, the big area, if you will, he's empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that's another thing I think we can take a step back again and, and maybe take a deep breath and say, wow, the God of the universe needed to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to do the work of God. How much more do we need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit? And if you're tracking along at his baptism, right, heaven opens up, the dove flies over his head, and God says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, empowered by the Holy Spirit. When he goes to the wilderness, right, it starts off in that wilderness narrative. Whether you read in Luke or you're in Matthew's version, they both say what? He's empowered by the Holy Spirit. And yet when he gets to, 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 to um, uh, Galilee, again it says he's walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. A reminder to all of us that every single day, every single moment, we all need to be reliant on the Holy Spirit. There's no point in your life where you got enough Holy Spirit. There's no point in your life where you're like, you know what, I'm good. <laughs> I feel like the next week I got this. You know, like I got my Holy Spirit juice, I'm ready to go. I got like seven days until I'm out of juice. That's not how it works. If the God of the universe needed to be empowered at baptism in the wilderness, going to his own hometown, how much more do you need to be empowered every single day? And so he's empowered by the Holy Spirit as he comes. And like I said, when he arrives, they've heard all these great things. They're just like, wow. Joseph's little boy is turning water to wine. He can come in my house all the time, right? Like Joseph's little boy is preaching and teaching. You know, there's nothing more terrifying from a preacher than to go to an audience who saw you when you were a snotty-nosed kid. People always ask, like, do you get nervous when you preach? Never, except at the church I grew up in. Like they all have way too much stories. Like, and none of them are good, you know? Like, just like, it's like, doesn't matter what I say, what I do. Like, that, I will always be nine-year-old Henry, you know? Like, like it, doesn't, it doesn't change for them, right? And I love them, and it's okay, but I'm just telling you, it's hard to go back home sometimes. And but when Jesus shows up home, the news had spread. And I want us to track along in this story, because a lot of times we, we kind of just rush to the end of the story, which is not good, right? They push him out, and they're going to throw him off a cliff, right? Like, that's not good. But I want us to understand that at this point of the story, they like Jesus. They're proud of Jesus. In fact, if anything, it's almost like I, I'm, I've been in Harrisburg for over 20 years now, right? I'm still not quite Harrisburg enough yet because I wasn't born and raised here. But I, the joke's on that my kids are born and raised here, so I'm adopted in, right? You know, it's like when you're born and raised in Harrisburg, it's just a different thing, right? And, and so it's interesting because I've seen this for years now. We'll, we'll have someone grow up in Harrisburg. They'll be doing something great, right? And we'll just side-eye them and be like, well, that's really cool. You're doing that in New York. But how come you ain't doing it in Harrisburg? You know, it's just like that's just our natural mindset, right? I know you guys don't do that, but we do that here. It's just like that's really cool you went to Philadelphia and you found that's awesome. Why can't you do it in Harrisburg? And so I feel like a lot of that is human nature. I think that's what was happening in Nazareth. It was just like, oh, you're turning water to wine. Cool. <laughs> you're talking to people at the well. Awesome. You're talking to Pharisees. Nicodemus, come to Harrisburg, right? Come home and do it. So I think a lot of that is in the air, but the news is spreading. But at this point, they're praising Jesus. They're loving everything he says. In fact, you know they're praising him because they invite him to the synagogue to speak. And this is also interesting because I was convicted by this, right? There's a line in here where Luke says he goes to the synagogue as his custom. 
So if you're tracking along, this is the God of the universe who to do anything for God needs to be empowered by the Holy Spirit or submits himself to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. That should motivate us to do the same thing, right? But this line convicted me because it was just like, as his custom, Jesus normally went to church. Now, I don't know about y'all, but it's been a couple years since we came through this pandemic thing, right? And a lot of us are still asking this question, do I need to go to church? And I'm not putting this on you. I'm just putting this on me, right? I would never guilt trip you. I'd never do such a thing. But I'm just saying, I was convicted that if the God of the universe feels the need to go to synagogue every week, I need to find more motivation for myself, right? Like if Jesus, he didn't have to go to church. He didn't have to go to synagogue, but that was his custom. And so he went every single week, right? And so when they're so pleased with the, 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 the son come home and he's preaching good things and doing miracles, come preach in the synagogue. And so when Jesus comes, they say, hey, we want you to speak. And what I love about this is as a kid, I just thought that Jesus, like, opened up the scripture and it happened to be in Isaiah, right? But if you read through the text, Luke is actually pretty straightforward, right? He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. This wasn't a random thing. <laughs> this wasn't just like, oh, it just happened to be the, the, the middle of the scroll. They handed him, they're like, you know, when you do scripture reading, everyone should sign up to do scripture reading, by the way. That's just, you'll, you'll give Pastor Hannah just joy in your heart. Like, before you leave today, you should go to Pastor Hannah and be like, I would like to sign up to scripture reading, right? Everyone should do it. She picks the verse for you. You come up here, you read, we respond. It's beautiful. Everyone should do it, right? That's not what happens here. Like, they're just like, hey, Isaiah, do something from Isaiah. And she's like, oh, I'll do something from Isaiah. And he opens up the scroll to talk about the Messiah. And if you're tracking along, nowhere when he's reading about his mission do they disagree with him. Like Jesus comes out and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. I don't know about you. If someone says that, I side-eye them. So how we know it's upon you? Because my Bible says it's upon us. You know, like it's not y'all. Right? It's like, like us. Like, but that's what Jesus says. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. And nowhere in the text you hear at that they say, oh, that's not true. Right? They let him keep going on. Right? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. God has anointed me. God has set me apart to do what? To preach good news to the poor. Freedom for the prisoners. Recovery of sight for the blind. Year of the Lord's favor. And if you break down Isaiah's text, right? And I think a lot of times, even we as Christians today, when we hear that good news to the poor, we go on the way far opposite and run away from what God is actually saying. When God promises to give good news to the poor, he's not promising you believe in me, you'll be wealthy. And I know I don't have to say that to this group, but there's a lot of Christians who still believe semblance of this, that if I love God enough, I will be rich enough. If I love God enough, he'll expand my business, he'll expand my property, he'll expand my possessions, right? There's a lot of us who have this misunderstanding of who God is and what God's blessing means. When Isaiah and Jesus here promises to bring good news to the poor, it was the idea that you are poor, yes, but that is not your entire identity. You're poor because you're oppressed, and I'm going to break those yoke of oppression. You're poor because in this world, they've taken so much from you and not given you a chance to have more, but in me, you will have everything that you need. When Jesus is addressing poverty here, he's not addressing it to make you richer in your bank account. He wants to make you richer in the things of God and in who God is, and to expand your understanding of who God is. Jesus isn't excusing the poverty. Jesus isn't saying poverty is okay. Jesus is just not promising you to be rich in worldly standards. When he says, I bring good news to the poor, that is, I know you're oppressed now, but salvation is on the way. 
I know you're under the thumb of this empire, but salvation is on the way. I know you see no way out, no tomorrow, but salvation is on the way. When he promises freedom for the prisoners, and I know a lot of us, we take this physically, like he's going to rip open the jail. It's not just, it is not just the slavery of sin that God desires for us to be free from. If you're trapped and you're imprisoned by sin this morning, yes, God wants you to be free of that too. But sometimes it's not just the sin that enslaves us. It's our past. It's, it's ourselves thinking, hey, we're not good enough. It's ourselves thinking that, like, I don't know how God could ever love me. So, so it's not just the sins that we do. It's even how we look at ourselves. Or, or God, I, I used to do X, Y, and Z. Now I can't do anything. I must be worthless. God wants to break you out of every single prison. We serve a God of liberation. And all of us always need more liberation. There's, again, just like you can't have enough of the Holy Spirit, you can't be like, you know what, God, I think I'm free enough. You know, like I was, I was, I was checking with myself, and I, I think I'm free enough now, right? That does not exist. We always need more liberation, recovery of sight of the blind. In Isaiah's text, it, there's actually in the, the Hebrew, it talks about light to the darkness. So we're not just talking about Jesus healing blind Bartimaeus and giving the blind sight, but we're all in spiritual darkness. And Jesus promises to be that light. You know, there's some scholars who believe that when Jesus reads this in the synagogue, it was actually supposed to be the year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor, the year that they would let the prisoners free, the year they would forgive all debts, right? No scholar has said that Jews or Israel has ever practiced a full year of Jubilee, right? So I think it's, it's, a, it's a rich irony that on the year of Jubilee, God says, I asked you to do this, and you did not do it to take care of your people, I asked you to do this to forgive each other's debts. I asked you to do this to let the prisoners out. If you won't do it, I will through my son, Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus says all of this, and then he even gets them and says, y'all, the scriptures are fulfilled in me. Right? At this point, no one's upset at it. And that actually shocked me because I'm like, well, I feel like if Jesus did that today, they would be upset. Back then, no one was upset at this point of the story. The scriptures are fulfilled in me. In fact, the scripture says that the people were amazed, and they were amazed at the gracious words that Jesus was saying. I don't think there's a Christian alive who could get away with saying this in the synagogue today. Yet Jesus said it, and the people were on board. But something's interesting here is that we serve a God who not just made us, but knows us better than we know ourselves. And God knows that it's possible for us to say something and not really mean it. Or for us to do something and not really have our heart in it. And so to this, Jesus looks at them and he says, you know what? It's cool, y'all. Prophets aren't even loved in their own country. And you start sitting there, you're just like, why do we flip the narrative? They like you, Jesus, right? But he sees through them. And then he seems to see their heart. He knows that they want a miracle. They want some big show. They want to dictate who God is, and that's what they need to believe. And this actually is a, it's a, it's a it checked me, I'm not going to lie. Because sometimes we want God to show up, don't we? We want God to do something big so we can see it. We want God to do something big so we're like, God, I know you're here now. You did some big miracle. And Jesus senses that in their spirit because he knows that they want the miracles and not the Messiah. Right? They want the healing, the power, they want all that stuff, but they do not want Jesus. So he flips the script and says, you're acting like you really love me, you do not. You're acting like you get it, you do not. In fact, let me tell you a story. 
And then he goes back to this. He says, y'all remember when there was famine in the land for three and a half years. Three and a half years we had no food. People were hungry. And not only were they hungry, they probably called out to God, right? But God didn't send Elijah to y'all. He sent her, he sent him to the widow at Zarephath outside of Israel. And now you see the people are like rumbling a little bit like, what you trying to say? This is our God. This is our Messiah. You trying to say God would not listen to us for three and a half years and help and Gentile? Like that's wild. So he goes, oh, <laughs> remember Elisha, the one who followed Elijah. Now, when he was in the rain, like, we had leprosy and all these skin diseases, and I'm sure y'all would have cried out to God for healing, but guess what? You weren't faithful, so God went outside of Israel again and went to Syria and brought Naaman to Elisha to be healed. And it is this, the idea that God is bigger than what they see, the idea that God is bigger than what they thought God should be, the, the idea that God's not just the God of Israel, but God's the God of the world. It is this that moves them to try to kill Jesus. Not him saying he's the Messiah. Not him saying the scriptures are fulfilled in me. Not him saying that literally everything God wants to do for the Messiah, I'm going to do. But when they say that God is bigger than who you think God is, and God is for more people than you, it'll move to kill him. And I know it's easy for us to kind of... Um, Divorce ourselves from that. But the hard question for us becomes, <laughs> who are the outsiders to our faith that God's still the God of? Who are those on the outside <laughs> that God still wants to let in? Who do we get angry when we think about God forgiving them too? Because they get so angry and they literally pushed him out of the synagogue. Now, I feel like this little step is, gets me a little head start. If y'all want to do such a thing, I feel like I get step on you. You know what I'm saying? But, like, I imagine Jesus was sitting there knowing it's going to happen, right? And the crowd gathers, and they literally are going to push him out of the synagogue off to a cliff. Now, you know, if there's an accident in the dairy street, it happens with two people. Give it two minutes, and you got a hundred different stories about what happened, right? Like, people love, I don't know, drama? Like, people just love it, right? So you can imagine whoever was a synagogue that Saturday, when they see you being pushed out of town, they're like, oh, what's going on here? And they just drive, and they drive Jesus to the cliff. Now, like, you're thinking, why would they drive Jesus to a cliff? I'll tell you. Welcome, children. Back then, how they would punish people who they thought was heretics is they would literally stone them. And I, I don't know, I watched too many movies or something, but it's like, I just imagine, I, was like, I would sit there as a kid, I'm like, let me get this straight. They're going to throw rocks at me, and you just got to sit there? Like, I don't know about you, like, I'm not that fast, but I'm faster than sitting down, right? Like, like I'm going to get running. Like, if you're going to get me, you're going to get me. <laughs> like, you're not just going to, I'm not going to give myself to you, right? And so they knew that. So this is what they would do, right? They would literally drive you to a cliff, push you off the cliff. Because the hope would be that you would be paralyzed. And when you're paralyzed and can't move, then they would stone you. And that's what they were trying to do to Jesus here. Y'all, this is the beginning of his ministry. This is the beginning of his work. And this is what they decided they were going to do. Drive him to a cliff and throw him off, right? And here's the richest, sweetest, delicious irony. They wanted a miracle. They wanted God to show up in a powerful way, right? You know how God shows up? He basically says, now y'all can part the sea. <laughs> I need to get going. And he walks right in the middle of them to save them. They were going to kill him. Literally going to kill him. 
And instead, Jesus says, you know what? It's not my time. And walks right in the middle of them out. Now, what do we pull out from this story? There's a lot we can pull out. But as I thought more about it this week, I kept coming to this idea of home. Not only is Jesus Joseph's son. And I just imagine this happened to me in my first sermon at the church I grew up in, right? Um, like, my aunt was like, that's my baby. And I'm like, this is not good for the, you know, like, like I'm an authority, right? You can't be, you know, that's my baby. Like, there's no coming back from that's my baby. You know, it's just like, you can't win, right? You're going to be like, ah, that's my baby, okay. You know, it's just, it's just, you don't win, right? But I just imagine when they said, is that Joseph's boy's man? Like, that same church martyr who yelled out? Like, that's what I pictured, right? But as I thought more about it is that Jesus isn't just saying, hey, I come home and my home rejected me. I think Jesus is trying to say, I come to make home for all of us. And, and so for somebody in this room, I think we need to hear this this morning. Your home is not simply where you're from. It's where you belong. Now, I know maybe there's some of us who, who have homes that we grew up in that was perfect. It was loving. It was amazing. We got support. And, and we think about it, we get butterflies in our stomach. We feel great about ourselves, right? I'm happy for you. That's wonderful. There's a lot of us who didn't grow up in those kind of homes. There's a lot of us who are so searching for home somewhere. And we live within a culture who will tell us that you can find a home in another person. That's not Jesus, but another person, a romantic person. Or you can find home doing this and this and this and this. And it's all a lie. Because your only home will always be Jesus. Your only home that you can be seen and held and, and, and respected and loved thoroughly and perfectly is Jesus. So for all of us, may we remember that a home is not where you're from. And I'm not saying don't honor your families. I'm not saying don't honor your culture that you're from. I'm not saying don't honor the, the people who are close to you and meaningful to you. I'm just saying Jesus is your home. And the, the closest we get to accepting that and holding on to that, the closer we get to peace. Because the sad thing about this life is that everything we make home might let us down somewhere, somehow. Praise God that home is with Jesus. Amen? And when we think about home with Jesus, we said this a couple weeks ago, right? We talked about sin. The spirit can't dwell where sin dwells. So if we take this idea of home is with Jesus, then we know that home for us is where the spirit dwells and where the spirit empowers. And I think that's the work for all of us. Now, a lot of times we read, I, I keep sharing this because it, it keeps hitting me when I'm in the scriptures, right? We read about, you know, how God blesses you, and, and you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And I keep waiting for the translator who will be bold enough to translate it into Central Pennsylvanian. And instead of putting you plural in the Greek subtext, just put y'all. Right? Because that changes the meaning. If I say you are building the temple, or you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that means individual. Right? I don't, I don't imply you plural by just pointing at you. But if I say y'all, you know y'all. Right? But y'all. If we are indeed the temple of the Holy Spirit, we must be the place where the Spirit dwells. And for us to be the place where the Spirit dwells, we have to submit to the Spirit every single day. Every single day. And now for some of us, I'll be honest, for me, this is every single hour, <laughs> sometimes every single minute, depending on how it's going that minute, every single second, right? We have to submit to the Spirit. Every, if the Spirit is going to dwell inside of you, we have to make room for the Spirit to dwell inside of us. And the best way i found to do that is to just surrender. So home is not where we're from, it's where we belong. Where we belong is where the Spirit dwells. And here's the challenge to us as we go out, right? 
I've said this tons of times, maybe too many times. But one of my favorite quotes of all time is when St. Augustine said that all of us as the church, as members of the church, we ought to be a home and a hospital for one another. So that's my challenge to us. Now, Pastor Bree talked about 150 in our circles, right? Some of us are frightened because we're just like, who's the 150? That's a lot of people. But whoever it is in your circle, whether it's 150 or 15 or 5, are you home to them? Do they look at you and see and feel God's love? Do they look at you and feel safe? Do they look at you and know that in this space they are loved, they are welcomed, they are held? Because that's the joy of this Christian faith. It's not just about us. It's not just about me and God. It's about us building life for one another. And so the challenge to us is to, yes, Jesus is where I belong. The spirit has to dwell inside of us. But am I actually doing God's work by being home to one another? Because I think that's where the mission of God happens. I wish I could design a, a discipleship program that says, yeah, you do this, and you will be not just a stronger Christian, but the mission will go forward. It will be perfect. Because a lot of times the mission of God happens in our prayers for one another, in our conversations with each other, in us actually doing life together. So are you willing to be a home for those in your circle? Because if you are, first starts with safety, and not just safety and comfort, maybe they too will believe that they belong to God. And that's the whole message of all of this, right? Luke is going to say, I know he's the Jewish Messiah, but he's the God for everyone. He's the God of all of us. And it's not lost upon me. Whenever I talk about our church, you know, I was like, yeah, I'm not saying we got it perfect, you know, but we're intentionally multicultural. And I love when people look at me like I'm from another planet. I'm like, well, I am. But that's besides the point, right? Like, I think it's fascinating to me that from Genesis to Revelation, we study Christian movements in America, North America, Africa, right? A lot of times the greatest tension arises when God's people deny the fact we're supposed to be one together. You look at the history of this country. Look at the history of any country of Christians. Whenever we deny the fact that we're supposed to be multicultural, one family together, we usually turn on each other and oppress one another. We come from an Anabaptist heritage where we were killed for believing that Jesus, for example, thinks that we ought to be, you know, of age, right? Believers baptism. We come from a heritage in this country too where we've been separated by race, socioeconomic status, geography, where we live, so many different things. But if God is truly the God of everyone, my prayer for all of us is that not only we say our church is intentionally multicultural, but we're all doing that work every single day, in every single conversation, in every single relationship, in every single thing that we're building, that we're building a kingdom that everyone can feel at home. Amen? I'd like to invite up the worship team. We're going to close singing a song um, called King of Kings, which, again, is going to tell the story of Jesus, who Jesus is, this Jesus that we worship. Um, as we sing, I'd like to invite any of the pastors in the room up front. We'd love to pray for you, pray for anything in response to the service today, or pray for anything you've got going on. But as we sing this song, I just want to challenge us to, to think about this idea of being home with the Lord, but not an individual home, but a place where we all can be welcomed. So maybe there's someone on your mind or maybe there's someone or, or a resource that's on your mind this morning. I want you to, to, to bring that to this song and to, to take that and make that your prayer this week, right? How can I be a home to this sister, to this brother? How can I be a home to even this people? Let's dream big. But let's stand and sing together.
darkness we were waiting without hope without light till from heaven you came running there was mercy in your eyes to fulfill the law and prophets to a virgin came the word from a throne of endless glory to
as the Lord Jesus' brother ends his epistle like this, I thought as we think about what it means to be home, what it means to survive wilderness, what it means to, to be home to one another, what it means to let how we understand God be expanded, right? What it means to have an eye out for the outsider and ways to invite them in. It can all seem very overwhelming. It can all seem like we can't do it, and that's okay. We're not supposed to do it on our own. We have some help. And I thought about Jude's closing words. I want that to be our benediction as we leave today. In Jude 24, 25, he writes this. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Our God, we thank you that you're capable. We thank you that you're able. We thank you that where we fall short, God, you go above and beyond. We thank you that where we are weak, you're strong. So, Lord, we think of all the people in our lives that we have failed that we have failed to be home with, that we have failed to be safe with, that we have failed to, to truly be your love and your grace and your mercy to. Lord, we ask for forgiveness. But Lord, we pray that this not only makes an impact on us in asking for forgiveness, but changes our ways, helps us to turn around so that we can be more open to be used by you. Holy Spirit, we come to you now asking for every single day that we would place our life in your hands, that we would submit daily, that we would submit even hourly if necessary, minute by minute, that we would submit ourselves to be filled by you so that those who are outside, Lord, our lives can invite them in. The love that you give us that pours through us can invite them in. The grace, the mercy, the kindness, the compassion that you show may be what we show too. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were sent not just for Nazareth, not just for Galilee, not just for Israel, but for the world. May we forever be grateful that you so loved the world. May we forever be grateful that, yes, you loved us, but you've called us to partner in you to do the work of welcoming your lost children home. So we thank you for this gospel of Luke that reminds us that we serve a God who's the God of the lost. But because you are God, Lord, everyone that's lost can be found. And we give you all the praise, the honor, the glory for that. In your holy and precious name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. God bless you all. Have a good week.